today as we begin week of evangelistic revival services. So without any further ado, I'll introduce our speaker, Brother Randy Chauvin and his wife, Grace. They have blessed us with their presence this week. And again, next week too, that's going to be good. Uh, you've never been out to Wagon Wheel, have you? Okay. You'll find it. <laughs> it's it's uh, off the main road, but it's beautiful facilities and got great people there and I have a great pastor, Brother Jim Smith and his wife, Sandy. All right. Brother Randy mentioned 254. Was that how many minutes he has to preach? Of course, if you divide that into 60, you're looking at four hours and 14 minutes. You have four hours and 14 minutes today. No, not for the whole month, for today, brother. This morning. Uh, no. I want you to preach as long as the Lord and the Spirit is leading you to. Don't worry about going to lunch or the clock. We don't do that here. Uh, they know when they show up on Sunday mornings, well, he's going to be at least 45 minutes or longer. Well, you know, some folks have a little thicker skull than others. It takes a little longer to get the word to sink in. But no, you preach as God leads you, brother. Uh, you've been missed, and I'm looking forward, me and Brother Bob, to going to Israel. This time, uh, God has blessed me. I asked the Lord, Lord, let me go one more time. This will be my third time, twice with Brother Randy. Uh, I'm so blessed. I pinch myself. God is so good to me. And I don't know why, because I fail him every single day. But I love him. He knows my heart, and I am grateful for my salvation and the assurance of my salvation. I don't go around, am I saved today? Did I think anything, say anything, act any way that caused me to lose my salvation? Listen, once he has begun a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it. So that takes us out of the equation because we couldn't on our best day. So anyways, enough's enough. Brother, you come. Right. You, Thank you preach what God laid on your heart, and I'm thankful you're here, brother. Oh, thank you, Pastor John. Man, I tell you, we get a lot of good admonition around here. And I'm sitting there just soaking that in, and now it's time for me to, Lord willing, give you some admonition. But it's a great, great, great Thrill for us to be back at Lone Mountain here in Las Vegas. You are a very special church to us, and I don't say that just every week where, where we go. And so we appreciate all of you. Good group here this morning. I'm praying to be a good group again tonight, and a good group Monday through Friday. Glad to have our young people in here. We want to preach things that they can understand and that they can grasp, especially tomorrow night. Tomorrow night is a message certainly for youth, but all of us. But if I have any night this week that would be more geared toward our young people, uh, elementary, secondary, all those things, tomorrow night would be the night. I have a lot of illustrations tomorrow night that I trust will resonate. And so let's be out, let's get families out here tomorrow night and any young people you know, whether they're little, little folks or, or bigger folks, and all of us come. And again, this week, our emphasis is on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Next week at Wagon Wheel, our emphasis is on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a continuation. We'll take you right through so many of the wonderful facets of the ministry of Christ when he's here on the earth. And again, I can never go wrong preaching on the life and ministry of Christ because he is the focal point of all of preaching and all of our hearts and lives and desires. And he is the fulfiller of all of our emptiness and vanities. And he's the fulfiller of all our needs and satisfactions. And so we emphasize him. We lift him up. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So Lord God, may he bless this week. And I tell you what, I, I'm, I'm glad to be back in the foreign field again. Two years of pandemic wiped out all of our foreign ministry. We spend six to seven months every year preaching in foreign countries, and that's what you support. And we thank you again publicly for your prayers and for your financial support, which enables us. Humanly speaking, we could never do what we do without people like you. And so praise God, all of that fruit overseas is on your account. But we just finished, I was August and beginning of September in Brazil, in Brazil, South America. And again, no clocks there either. You got a 254 on your, they got a 400 on their wall. But anyway, we, uh, I was there on a, a Saturday. So this Saturday, Saturday now, we're going to have meeting Sunday. We want you to preach for four hours, <laughs> four hours straight. <laughs> Uh, praise God. You want anybody, any takers here? We can four hours straight, and I did it. Praise the Lord. And pray, praise God for your good spirit and your good attitudes about these kind of things. And, and, and I wish I could take all of you to the foreign field where services go at least three hours long, and they don't want any little sermonette. They believe that sermonettes are for Christianettes. <laughs> and th- they're disappointed. I mean, they're disappointed if I don't give them at least an hour. One time in Jamaica, West Indies, we're there. My father-in-law was an evangelist, preached for an hour, and they sing for a whole hour before we start preaching. Now, Brother Bob, right? We sing for a whole hour, and then we start preaching. And did the hour, benediction was given, nobody moved, and all of a sudden came the cries from the congregation, preach us another one! So preach for another hour. Now, that's what we're used to on the foreign field. And so, uh, anyway, appreciate you. We're going to have a great time this week. Make your plans. Change schedules if there's conflicts. And try to be here every night through Friday night. I was mentioning in Sunday school, most churches now do Sunday through Wednesdays and they expect revival to break out in four days. Well, sometimes it can happen. God is sovereign, but I I do like the full week, so I appreciate that, Pastor John, and uh, we're going to have a wonderful time. So my wife's going to come, and you know she's blessed, and I appreciate our dear sister. Hallelujah. That's a compound Hebrew word. Hallel means praise, and Yah, Luyah, or that's Yahweh, or Yehovah, or Jehovah. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, over and over. We ought to praise the Lord. And that, that's a, that's a good, a good thing. And then, and then the people need the Lord. Brother Custer, that was excellent. I haven't heard that one in a long time. Used to hear that one sung all the time. And so praise God for bringing that back to us. And so right now it's time for a recitation. And this is my wife, Grace. And uh, most of you know her, and this is her her talent, and she does it every night before I preach. And so she's got a, a lot of repertoire of these kind of things. And so let's listen, continue to prepare our hearts for the preaching. I wonder where he lives. 
my God, whom I confess? Where is his dwelling place? What is his home address? Is it in the heavens beyond the starry skies? Is it Eden's garden fair, the earthly paradise? Is it the celestial city where Jesus is the light? Can I really reach him with my prayer in the darkness of the night? Oh, yes, I know I can, for God is everywhere. He fills all time and space above, below, and here. And yet I wonder still, beyond the heaven's dome, is there a place today that God regards as home? Where then can I find it? There's no burning bush in sight, no tabernacle for his cloud and his Shekinah light. There's no temple now, no sacrifice today, but we do have his word. We know that Jesus is the way. Holy ground and temple and sacrifice is he. And wonder of wonders, Jesus dwells in me. He lives within my heart and soul. He inhabits all my praise. So my address is God's address and will be all my days. And in each heart where Christ abides to comfort, reign, and bless, Wherever dwells the Son of God, there is God's address. So the question, the question, the question, are you God's address? Because when you're a saved, born-again, heaven-bound child of God, Christ indwells you. He indwells you in the person of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. And we can cry, Abba, Father. So, Father in heaven, we bow before you, for you are the only God, the only true God. Thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. You've delivered many of us from our idolatries, our paganism, our hedonism, and all kinds of other isms. Thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. How we pray that if it be your will, and we believe it is, that you dispense your saving grace on someone even today, certainly someone this week, certainly others next week, as we delve into the amazing, wonderful Lord Jesus Christ and first coming, second coming, things of his life, things of prophecy. And so we just ask your blessing on the message today. We pray, Lord, that you give us listening ears and understanding hearts and that you'd meet every need that's here today. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the pastor. We thank you for these dear people as we look out and see so many wonderful, familiar faces of the brethren that we've enjoyed their fellowship and friendship for so long. We do pray for our nation. We pray for the elections on Tuesday. We pray that everything would be according to your sovereign plan. But we do know that your prophetic word says things will wax worse and worse. Thank you for the reprieves you've given us along the way. But we know that uh, all is going to be under the Antichrist and a one-world government, and the Lord Jesus will come and destroy all and set up his kingdom. 
So, Lord, it's exciting days we're living in. And even though we are discouraged by what we're seeing as a nation, we do our, we do lift up our heads for our redemption draws nigh. So bless the word of God now as we present it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin this whole series on the life and ministry of Christ on his first coming with his teaching ministry. Teaching ministry. You cannot read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not come away with having been taught by the master. That's what the Lord Jesus said in, in Matthew 11, uh, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And do what? Learn of me. That is an admonition from your beloved Savior. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you'll find rest to your souls. And so we want to do that. We want to learn of him. I remember when I first got saved, I was a 20-year-old Roman Catholic in the United States Air Force, living like the devil, go to Mass on Sunday, and then live like the devil the rest of the week, because all I had was religion. I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I had a system, but not a Savior. I had a program, but not a person. And then that night of September 19th, 1976, at the back of the Maranatha Baptist Church in Okinawa, Japan, while serving in the U.S. Air Force, I was accosted. I was arrested. I was conquered by the mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus, who saved my soul and cleansed me of sin and lifted me from the miry clay and set my foot upon a rock, and I've been with him ever since. But I remember when I first got saved, I... I had a, a new love for the Word of God, which I never had before, and I was fascinated with prophecy. Heard a couple of prophetic, men. man, that stuff's exciting, man, I want to know more about that. And so as a new newbie believer, I delve into the book of Revelation, and the guy who led me to Christ, Mark Cheney, says, listen, listen, Brother Randy, Revelation's exciting, it is important, but you need to learn about your Savior. You need to get back into the Gospels. And so I did. But I remember here, I've never forgot, you need to learn about your Savior. And that's what we want to do, the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is a master, master teacher. And if you want to know about how to teach, if you are in a, some kind of teaching profession, you would do well to study the teaching methods of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he was a master of it. I remember in Bible college, we used to take Christian education courses, and we'd have to learn the, the laws of teaching and the laws of learning, and we'd apply them to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus never violated what we call the law of apperception. If I quiz you later in the week, what is the law of apperception? I want you to be able to tell me. The law of apperception is you never teach a new truth without basing it on truth that's already known. The Lord was the master of that. In John 2, he took water, H2O, and changed it into a totally different molecular element called heavily concentrated, heavily quality grape juice. I don't believe for a minute that was alcoholic wine. If you believe that, I've got a whole message on John 2 about what that was, what he, what he changed water into. And I'll give it to you biblically what that was. We're not giving credence to these people who believe in social drinking as a, as a born-again, heaven-bound child of God. 
Uh, we're, we're Rechabites. Did you know that? <laughs> you got another book of Jeremiah. Uh, we're Rechabites, man. I'll tell you why, because that's biblical. Well, listen, the whole point is he changed something that was very familiar into that high-quality, first-squeezing grape juice, which is very expensive juice in Israel. And the fact is, the Lord Jesus did that as his very first miracle. Why was that his first miracle? Because it was a miracle that explained why he came. He came to change things. And if he can turn water into high-quality grape juice, he can change you. He can touch and change your life radically. He did it to me. He's done it to many of you. And he can do it for you. And so he took something that everybody was understanding. In in John 3, he uses the subject of birth. Everyone understands physical birth. So he builds on that truth to talk about a spiritual birth. In John chapter 4, again, he uses the subject of water. Water's familiar to all of us. You got to have water to live. If you go 11 days without water, you will dehydrate and die. (laughs) So 11 days, all right, we need water. Water is essential to life. And so the Lord deals with a woman at the well in Samaria, and he says, all right, let's base, let's, let's, let's base on that truth. Water, essential for life. And now he teaches you need the living water that only Christ can offer. In John chapter 5, you have the subject of sickness. You have the five porches of the Pool of Bethesda, which we will be visiting in January, and I'll preach my now famous message on what that healing was all about in John chapter 5 with that man who's trying to get into the water and everybody beats him in there. All right, was that a God thing? We'll find out. And so, but sickness, we're all aware of sickness. We've all been sick sometime in our lives. So the Lord builds on that truth. The true healing for any sickness comes from him, the true healing spiritually. In John chapter 6, we have the subject of bread. Maybe you had a piece of bread today or some kind of flour-based item that you consumed in your breakfast endeavors there. Bread. Bread. Everybody knows bread. Now the Lord builds on that and he talks about he being the bread of life, essential, essential for spiritual nourishment. And so he goes on in John 8, he talks about light. We all know about light. We got some light right here. And he builds on that. He said, I am the light of the world. If anyone believe and follow me, he shall not walk in darkness. John chapter 9 is blindness, spiritual blindness. Yeah, we know about physical blindness. I've got some good blind friends. But he's talking about now the fact that All of us are born spiritually blind, and all of us can have spiritual sight, but it must come from His touch. You'll never come out of spiritual blindness by just being religious or a good person. You have to have the touch of the Master's hand to open your spiritual eyes and set you free from blindness. In John chapter 10, he uses a beautiful, beautiful analogy of the shepherd and the sheep. And the lost, scattered, straying sheep that are found of the shepherd. Everyone in Israel knows about shepherd and sheep. In, in, in John 11, where Brother Custer was in his Sunday school lesson, well, his Sunday school, what do you call that thing? Launch pad or whatever it was, uh, dealing with death. 
death and the fact that the Lord Jesus is the, is the one who's the author of life and death and you must have spiritual life in him. We could go on and on. I guess the point I'm trying to make is the Lord, the Lord Jesus never violated the law of apperception. He was a master teacher, knew how to take truths that everyone was familiar with and build on them and teach you spiritual truth, which I intend to do now in this next couple of minutes that we have. I've already taken five or ten of my 254 minutes, and so John chapter 3 is where I want to emphasize his teaching ministry here this morning and this evening. This is a two-part message, and you look like a very intelligent group of people. Am I right? All right, a few of you think you're intelligent, all right? (laughs) I know you'll never settle for a half of a message, so tonight at what time? Six, six of the clock. Tonight, this evening, la noche, tonight, at six o'clock, we will continue this John 3, especially dealing with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we're dealing with this man, this man, Nicodemus, talk about him a little bit. I want to give you a lot of interesting, I trust, factual background material on why this man comes to Jesus. But when the Lord was with this man, in verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a, a teacher. That's my emphasis today, the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus. Every night this week through Friday night, we'll have a different facet of the ministry of Christ. But today, the teaching ministry of Christ, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And so we find this familiar passage, but I want to give you some things here that may not be as familiar to you. We're introduced to this man, Nicodemus. We know two things about him. Number one, he's a Pharisee. Number two, he's part of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews. There was a man of the Pharisees. That's where I am in John 3, 1. Is that where you are? All right, good. John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees, a man pitted against the Lord Jesus. You find that many times in Scripture. Mere men dealing with deity dealing with the God-man, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, you cannot travel very much throughout the Gospels without coming in contact with this group called the Pharisees. So we need to know who they are. We need to understand their culture and backgrounds to understand why Jesus deals with Nicodemus. And and throughout the Gospels, you're going to find a scathing rebuke from Jesus against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Why was it so scathing? Why did he say what he said to the Pharisees? You vipers! How can you escape the damnation of hell? Oh, weren't the Pharisees good people? Shouldn't we have an ecumenical movement? Say, oh, the, the Pharisees, they just be a little different than we do, but they're God's children. Let's all just love each other. You know, Jesus had no interest in forming an ecumenical movement with the Pharisees. Just like Paul had no desire to have an ecumenical movement with the Judaizers. Read the book of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul didn't have kind words for the Judaizers. 
Paul didn't say, you know, let's just have a one big promise keeper meeting here. Let's just have one big council of Christianity and we'll, we all a little bit different beliefs, but doctrine's not important. Uh, doctrine divides, love unifies. That wasn't Paul. <laughs> we want truth and we want to share truth with people and we do love all people. We really do. And, and, but we're not going to parley with these people who are doctrinally off. And the Pharisees had a wonderful beginning. The Pharisee movement began about 167 B.C. And you have to know what's going on in the intertestament period. All right, the intertestament period of 400 years. You have the last prophet, who was an Italian, Malachi. Remember him? <laughs> is, that, is that right, Brother Tucci? Was Ah, all right, so Malachi, and then you have 400, what's called the 400 silent years, because there was absolutely no revelation from God for 400 long years. Think, all right, so this is a, a 2022, so in 1622, we had the last word from God. 1622, man, that's Plymouth Rock stuff. There had been no revelation from God, no prophet, Nothing from God for 400 long years until Gabriel comes and breaks the silence. There was Zacharias in Luke 1, and then you got Gabriel with, uh, with Miriam. Remember her? That's Mary. All right, Hebrews, Miriam. That's why there's so many Marys in the Bible, because it was Moses' sister, Miriam. Every Jew wanted to name their daughter Miriam. That's why you have so many Marys. And so the silence was broken, but in that 400 silent years, the Pharisee movement began. And it began because of Hellenism. All right, you, all right, you know that Babylon conquered the Assyrians, and then Medo-Persian conquered the Babylonians, and then Greece, under Alexander the Great, conquered the Persians. And so Greek mythology, Greek culture, called Hellenism, had crept into the society of Jews in Judea. And so we have all this Greek Hellenism and the thing about myths and, 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 and idols and all those things were, were creeping into Israel. So a group of men stood up. And it's good to stand up. There's things we ought to be standing up for. And they said, we are going to help the nation of Israel to rid it of Hellenism. And we're going to be the separatists. That's what Pharisee means, separatists. Now, I like to think of myself as a separatist when we think about independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, heaven-loving, hell-hating Baptists. <laughs> but separatism, although it was good in their beginnings, uh, decayed very quick, quickly. So the Pharisee movement that began with good ambition... We're going to bring Judea back to the living God. We're going to reestablish Jewish culture. We're going to try to get rid of all this Greek Hellenism. And it began well, but did not last very long. Because the Pharisees, the separatists, became very, very depraved in their, in their system of soteriology or their system about meeting with God and, and being right with God, they recodified the law of Moses into 1,613 rules. And they said, 613 rules, that is going to prescribe our lifestyle. We're going to be separatists. We're going to keep 
the 613 laws of the Torah and uh, exemplified and magnified through the Mishnah, the tradition of the elders. And again, the Pharisees chided Jesus and apostles many times, why, why don't, why doesn't your master keep the Mishnah? <laughs> well, because it's man-made, that's why. <laughs> Matthew 15, 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And we have to be careful of that. You know, we have to be careful of Phariseeism creeping into our minds and hearts and into our church. There were some 6,000 Pharisees living in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And any man could be a Pharisee. A lot of times well, the Pharisees were the, were the scribes. They were the preachers and the law teachers. But that's not true. Any man, any Jewish man could be a Pharisee. And you would come to the Pharisees and say, I'd like to be a Pharisee. I'd like to join your movement. And so there'd be a year-long probationary period as you're future potential Pharisee brothers watch your life and see whether you keep the 613 laws. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? What if Pastor John Richardson would stand before you today and say, from now on, you want to be a member in good standing at Lone Mountain Baptist Church? You're going to keep 613 laws. And all we could respond, Ugh. You know, God gave 10 laws. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He gave ten, and there's never been a human being alive saving Christ and his humanity that ever kept the law. We can't even keep ten. In fact, if you want another hour of preaching, I'll show you how you've broken all ten of the commandments, and so have I. God never gave the Ten Commandments that you should try to keep them and get yourself to heaven. He gave them to show you how sinful you really are. He gave the law so that we would realize we could never keep this. Left to myself, I will always stray. Left to myself, I will always sin against God. And so I can't keep ten laws. Only Christ kept them perfectly. And when I get saved, they are kept perfectly in my standing and in my position through Christ. And so if we can't even keep ten, how, how did these people expect lowly, sinful man to keep 613 and so that's why the Lord Jesus said it in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's what he's referring to. Because the people of Judea were under the Pharisees. And the Pharisees dictated and, and, and gave their laws to the nation of Israel, expecting that they should try to keep those. And, God, and the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, says, I know you can't keep that great burden. Come unto me, all you that are laboring, trying to keep the laws of the Mishnah, and you're heavy laden with religion. Come to me, I'll give you spiritual rest. And that's what he's offering. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees. And then you have the, Sadduce, the Sanhedrin, or the Sadducees, and he was a ruler of the Jews. And so the ruling elders of Israel called the Sanhedrin, that began about 400 BC, about right at the beginning of the 400 silent years, the intertestament period, the Sanhedrin or the Sadducee movement began. And it was, uh, it, it was a, a group of men who were the most religious, moral, upright citizenry, citizenry in Israel. If the state of Nevada said, we're going to choose 70 men 
from all of the men of the state of Nevada, and they are going to become the ruling elders of the state, that's what we would have here. So of all over Judea, every man was evaluated, and the 70 most religious, upright, moral men were chosen for the Sanhedrin, and most of those were Sadducees. And so you have Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, and he's a ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus represents the ultimate, the epitome of a religious man, one who has trained his flesh in discipline to keep a set of organized rules. And so this is the man we're dealing with, this Nicodemus. And so the Pharisees control the synagogues. The Sadducees control the temple. And so you keep that in mind as you're going through your Gospels in the New Testament. And so that's why the Pharisees issued an edict that anyone that would be found to say that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah should be excommunicated out of the synagogues because they control the synagogues. And again, the Sadducees control the the temple and the priesthood and and all of those things. And so this is who we're dealing with. (laughs) The same came to Jesus by night. This is the original Nick at night you've ever heard of that, all right? So Nicodemus, Nick at night, and it's been asked for centuries, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? Probably because he feared what these Pharisee brothers, the 6,000 of them in Jerusalem, what they would think if they knew that he, as a Pharisee, And even as Sanhedrin would be interested in Jesus as Messiah. And so fearing. Some people believe he he, he came by night because during the day the Lord Jesus was thronged by multitudes of people. And he really would have had a difficult time having a private audience with Christ during the day. But he came by night essentially because he feared. Fear is an awful thing used to the devil. A lot of fear going on in the last two years. A lot of fear, even among believers. But he hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Public opinion can dominate your thinking if you're not careful. What people think. And the sad truth is the devil uses it to keep a lot of people from being born again, from being saved. What are your friends going to think if you get this born again business? What is your... Family, they, they believe other things. What are they going to think if you get saved? And so the devil uses fear and the public opinion of others, whether it's family or people at work or in your neighborhood or wherever it is, to keep you from the greatest event that could ever happen in your life, and that is you would be born again. And that's what Jesus is going to teach. You remember Revelation 21.8 gives a list of the people going to the lake of fire. Did you know that? Revelation 21.8. A list of the people going to the lake of fire forever. You know who number one on the list is? It's not the murderers, not the rapists, it's not the drug dealers, not the thief or the liar. Number one on the list, the fearful. Isn't that amazing? The fearful are the number one on the list. The greatest amount of people in hell today are there because they were afraid. They had a fear of public opinion. What if I get saved? What if I get born again? I should be born again, but I'm too afraid of my family. 
I'm too afraid of ostracization. I'm too afraid of ridicule or persecution that come from my old friends and my workers. And they're also afraid of the changes the Lord Jesus will make in their lives. They do. I've talked to these people. The devil has sold them a bill of goods that they're satisfied with their lifestyle the way it is now. The bottom line is people are in love with their sin. They don't want the Lord Jesus to come inside of them, come in, in them and, 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 and interrupt their sinful lifestyle. That's what the Lord Jesus said in John 3.19. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light because the light exposes their corrupt, sinful, depraved, wicked hearts. Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2.12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the bottom line why people don't want to be saved. I don't care what excuse you might give me. And I think I've heard everyone... The bottom line is you're in love with your sin. And you're afraid of the Lord Jesus. You're afraid if you call on Him to come into your life and save your poor, wretched, hell-bound soul, that He'll change things. Well, I got news for you. He will change things. He's going to radically change you. But it'll be good change. It's change that you will rejoice in. And those of us who are saved, we look back at our old lives and say, my. I'm so thankful the Lord interrupted my sinful lifestyle. I'm thankful that he radically changed and transformed my life. And so he came to Jesus by night, and he comes very respectfully. He said unto him, Rabbi, which is teacher, master, we know. Now that's interesting. We know. He didn't say, I know that thou art a teacher. No, he said, we know. Is it possible that Nicodemus was sent to Jesus with questions from a delegation, a group of the Pharisees that did not agree with the conclusions of the other Pharisees? He says, we, we know. Is he leading a delegation? I don't know, but sure looks like it. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. And that no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. You see, that is dramatically, di uh, diametrically opposed to the other Pharisees. What happened? The Gospel of Matthew tells us what happened with these other Pharisees. Because the first 12 chapters of Matthew... Jesus Christ is offering the kingdom age to the Jewish nation. He is offering the kingdom of heaven. And he's offering for the millennial kingdom to begin then. It was a legitimate offer of the kingdom, which was prophesied and promised throughout the Old Testament. Right now, Israel's the tail, but they will be the head. Right now, there's the world full of anti-Semitism, but it's coming where Israel will be the head nation of the world. Jerusalem will be the capital of the entire world. And if you lay the world out flat, did you know that Jerusalem is the exact center of the earth? So that's a coincidence. There is a God in heaven, my friend. 
And God had David conquered Jebus of Jerusalem, made it his capital, and has become the city of God. And Jerusalem will be the capital of the earth. And the Jews will be the head nation. And Christ will reign from a throne in Jerusalem. And we who are saved among the redeemed will have glorified bodies. And we will rule and reign with Christ in that thousand years on the earth. And Jesus is offering that to Israel in the first century. And so the Lord is doing his teaching, he's doing his miracles, miracles for the purpose of authenticating a message, always been that way. Even with Moses in Egypt, here's the God of heaven, here's what he says, here's what he says you must do, and here's the proof, zap, 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 all these plagues. It's that way. And all, all of scripture, that miracles were for the purpose of authenticating and giving validity to a message. Jesus is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have the kingdom of heaven. You can have the millennial age now. And he preaches that the first 12 chapters of Matthew. But what happens? Jesus is talking about, if you don't believe me, believe the miracles because they're from my father. And What did the religious leaders, what did the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what did they say of Jesus Christ? Your miracles are of Satan. You perform miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub was one of the Baal gods of the Old Testament. And through time, it became known as a name for Satan. You do the miracles that you do by the power of the devil. And that's the national rejection of the Messiah, of the King, by the nation of Israel. When the religious leaders ascribed the miracles of Christ to Satan, that was the end. That was the end of the offer of the kingdom. Matthew 13 now begins with seven prophetic parables, seven prophetic parables of the character and consummation of the age between the two comings. The kingdom is now postponed. The king will be crucified, rise again, go back to his father with the promise that he's coming again. Next week, he's coming again at Wagon Wheel. At least preaching about the second coming at Wagon Wheel. <laughs> and so the kingdom is postponed. The kingdom age, the kingdom of heaven is postponed. And that's what the Pharisees did. They ascribed the works and the miracles of Jesus to Satan. But that's not Nicodemus. He does not agree with that. Neither does this delegation. We know what? That thou art a teacher come from God. You are not of the devil. We know, we're persuaded, we're convinced that you have come from God. And that the miracles you do are the hand of God in your life to validate your message. And he said, I'm confused about your message. And so in the first three verses of John 3, you have this point, the cruciality of the new birth. It is absolutely essential, it is mandatory that you be born again. And then we have the confusion of Nicodemus in verse 4. And then you have the clarification 
of Christ, about what the new birth is. In verses 5, really to the end of the chapter. And so Nicodemus comes at night and he is confused. And Jesus just cuts him off. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows exactly why Nicodemus is coming. And he answers Nicodemus' question before Nicodemus can even ask it. What's Nicodemus after? The kingdom, the kingdom. He has heard John the Baptist preach, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's heard the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent? Me? Religious, upright, have the Old Testament memorized, went to Hebrew school at age three, was indoctrinated and taught from age three on about the ways of God from the Torah and then the Tanakh. <laughs> really, Jesus? I-, I need to repent. We, from this delegation of Pharisees, we believe your teacher come from God. We believe your miracles authenticate your message, but your message is bewildering to us. Repent. You see, in the first century, among the Pharisees and the Jewish people, they thought, since they were the chosen people of God, they were the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. They were recipients of the Davidic covenant. They thought that they were automatically right with God because they were children of Abraham. And Nicodemus is thinking, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a, a Jew of, uh, of the chosen race. And surely your message is bewildering. I would need to repent. The Jews actually believed that Abraham sat at the gateway of hell to catch any Jew that might have fallen down there accidentally. <laughs> That's what they believed. So you can see the mentality of Nicodemus. John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, all preaching, repent. We have to repent. So the Lord Jesus, again, answers his question before he can even ask it. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, unto thee, Nicodemus, and all of those who sent you, and to the nation of Israel, Judea, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And notice there is a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. A lot of people use those simultaneously. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus taught in John, Matthew 6 about the prayer, Our Father which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. (laughs) Thy kingdom come. That's a a prayer for the kingdom of heaven to come to the earth. (laughs) Now, the kingdom of God includes all who are in Christ, all who have been radically, dramatically transformed by the grace of God. We all are part of the kingdom of God. We are the body of Christ. And we are in this local church, which is another great doctrine, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And we believe in the local church. 
that all of the New Testament teaches about it. Is that what missionary Baptists believe? Are you strong local church people? All right. Not just a universal, although there is a body of Christ that encompasses all saved, born again, blood bought, heaven bound children of God on the earth today. You have the kingdom of God, which includes all who've ever been saved from the first century till today. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not going to be offering the kingdom of heaven again in his earthly ministry. That comes at a second coming of Christ. Now, this term being born again is is very misunderstood. If you do any kind of witnessing at all, you're going to find people out there have all kinds of wacky ideas about what it means to be born again. I, I was talking to a person one time and said, have you ever been born again? They said, yes, I have. When was that? When I was baptized as an infant. Because that's what the church I grew up in teaches, that you are born again when you receive pedo or infant baptism. That's when you're born again. Uh, no, 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 it isn't. I was talking to a lady one time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, witnessing to her. I said, Madam, have you ever been born again? She said, yes, I have. I said, tell me about it. She said, I was in this very living room right in my house. And Jesus Christ appeared to me. Appeared to me. I saw him right here in my living room. And that's how I know I'm born again. Boy, you need a more sure word of prophecy, lady. I'm not discounting you saw something. But even the Apostle Peter said, I had the greatest vision there ever was. In Matthew 17, 1, in the transfiguration, seeing Christ transfigured in his true, true uh, entity is now on the outside. He said, man, I had a vision as none of you will ever have. And yet, he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. All visions must go through the grid of the more sure word of prophecy, which is the word of God. And, and so she totally misunderstood what the new birth is. It's not seeing a, a vision of Jesus in your living room. I saw a television news clip down in Florida. We live in Gainesville, Florida, north central Florida. No, uh, the hurricane didn't get anywhere near us. <laughs> I was watching a television news clip, and they were doing a feature on the Feast of the Epiphany of a particular denominational church in Tampa, Florida. And the Feast of the Epiphany includes a yearly annual tradition. All of the young men of that denominational church meet on the docks of Tampa Bay. And they're stripped down to swimming suits. And there's a, a bishop of that particular church. And he's holding a large metal cross. And the tradition says that as the bishop tosses that cross into the waters of Tampa Bay, all these young men will dive into the waters to retrieve it. And whichever man, young man, retrieves that metal cross out of the waters of Tampa Bay, he will have the blessing of God on his life for the next year. Total tradition. (laughs) No biblical merit. And so the film crew is rolling this, man. The media is right there. 
And here they show the big bishop, and he throws that metal cross into the waters of Tampa Bay. And then you see all of these men diving off of docks in the water. You know, just splashing and all kinds of stuff going on. And they come up for a breath of air, and they go right back down. And finally, finally, one young man pops out of the water. I've got it! I've got it! And the media zooms in. Young man. Tell us how you feel right now. He's clutching that cross and he's saying, I've just been born again. Obviously, that young man has no idea what it means to be born again. (laughs) Well, the Lord Jesus is the master teacher, never violating the law of our perception. (laughs) And he will teach us what it means to be born again. And we're going to evaluate that whether we have been born again or not. (laughs) He said it is absolutely crucial. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. (laughs) Tonight we'll be looking at verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What is this water? (laughs) What is he talking about in the clarification section? And then tonight we'll talk about that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. What's that all about? We got to know this. If you're going to have any victory in the Christian life. And then verse 7, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So tonight we'll look at three truths. Same three truths are for physical birth. And if you can understand physical birth, law of apperception, the exact same truths are true of the spiritual birth. So very important information. Except a man be born again. To be born again is a spiritual transaction wrought completely by the power of God has nothing to do with you. (laughs) Has nothing to do with you, Nicodemus, being a very religious, upright citizenry, Old Testament memorized, you got a Sunday school pin that is so long you trip over it. (laughs) Has nothing to do with your religion, Nicodemus. Has nothing to do with your faithful Hebrew school training. Has nothing to do with what the Pharisee movement was all about. Has nothing to do with... You and your religion has nothing to do with what kind of person you are, whether you're a good father, mother, neighbor, brother, uh, whatever. It has nothing to do with you at all. The new birth is wrought by the power of God, the transforming grace of God in the heart of an individual that understands its sinfulness. This is where the Pharisees failed miserably. You see those... Pharisee, a Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, as he stands up publicly. <laughs> and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God wasn't receiving his prayer, praying to himself. <laughs> oh God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. <laughs> Extortioners, murderers, adulterers, or even like this hated publican over here, this tax collector. I tithe twice. I, I, I. 
This man was so full of himself, and that's what the Pharisee movement degenerated into, a self, ego, pride, proud of religion, comparing yourselves to other people. Look how much better I am than these other people. You know, if you compare yourself with somebody else, you'll always look good. Because <laughs> you'll always find somebody out there more wicked than you are. <laughs> but when we compare ourselves with God's law, God's holiness and right, we all come short. <laughs> and we all need a Savior. <laughs> and when we recognize our sinfulness, and we cry out to God because I'm a transgressor of your law. I've broken your law, and I deserve death. I deserve hell. Until you come to that place, you're not ready to be born again. You have to see yourself exceeding sinful, a transgressor of God's law, and deserving of judgment in hell. Because it's only when you realize, I deserve to go to hell, that you'll see yourself falling, falling, falling into the pit. And then and only then will you cry out in sincerity, Save me! Even as the publican did in Luke 18, 13, the publican stood afar off. Would not so much as even look up to heaven, but smote upon his breast, which is an Old Testament sign of mourning over your sinfulness. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went home saved. Not the religious, pompous, self-righteous Pharisee. And so the spiritual birth has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with the Savior who left heaven, who took on human flesh in the incarnation I, I was telling RJ because she's with Hobby Lobby now and feels free to use Merry Christmas next month. I said, well, you could also say have a blessed incarnation celebration. I've said it for years. You go out and you're checking out at Hobby Lobby or Walmart or wherever you are. Have a blessed incarnation celebration. And the people look at you, huh? <laughs> and you get a chance to tell them what that means. That's what Christmas is. <laughs> it's not Christ's mass. <laughs> you want the origins. <laughs> it's have a blessed incarnation celebration. We are celebrating the incarnation. <laughs> God became man. God became sinless, perfect man. God became the sinless, perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he could satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God for sin because of who he is. It was who he is that made what he did so important, so effectual, so powerful. And so the new birth is wrought in what Christ has accomplished, not what you accomplish. The new birth is based in a savory, perfect sacrifice for sin who died in our place and shed his blood to wash away our sin, was buried and rose triumphantly from the grave, and has ascended on high and is alive forevermore, offering freely by His grace the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life. You can't work for a gift. You can't earn a gift. You simply by faith receive a gift. And so He says, you must be born again. And so you too must be born again. And again, this new birth 
not of anything of yourself. Let me briefly share with you John 1, 12, but as many as received him, Christ, to them and only them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We know that, but look at the next verse, John 1, 13, which were born, which had a spiritual birth. And where did that come from? Notice verse 13, which were born not of blood, Nicodemus. It doesn't matter that you're a physical descendant of Abraham. Remember John the Baptist? God is able to make children of Abraham out of these stones. Being a physical descendant of Abraham is not going to help you. Your sin has condemned you and is going to take you to hell unless you receive Christ. And so it's not of blood. doesn't matter who your pap you are. You ever talk to people? Are you going to heaven when you die? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. I believe. How do you pay that? My, my pappy was a preacher. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do anything for you. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your bloodline is, nor of the will of the flesh. There's nothing you can accomplish in the flesh to bring this new birth. You cannot be religious enough or moral enough or, or, or have some kind of standing in the community. Maybe you're a philanthropist. Maybe you belong to the Elks Club and the Beaver Club and the Raccoon Club and all the clubs, you know, that do community service. That does not, not going to help you. Nor of the will of man. This is so important. This wipes out infant baptism. I was baptized as an infant, and I had godparents that were answering for me. No man can answer for you. Any kind of infant baptism you had is pure tradition, has no biblical basis at all. And millions, yea, billions have been given a false hope. Then, well, I was baptized as a baby. I'm all right. No, you're not. It's not the will of some other man answering for you, but what's the right answer? But of God. But of God, God does it. You want it, ask Him for it. You want to be born into the family of God today? You come directly to God Himself. So I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I deserve death and hell for my sin. I believe I could never save my own soul through religious accolades or, or good works. Or I come as a humble sinner to the cross. I kneel before that cross. I invite the crimson flow of His blood that was shed there to cover me, to save me, to forgive me. <laughs> I receive my faith as risen Lord Jesus as my Savior because I need Him and I want Him and I invite Him into my heart and life. That's being born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. I'll conclude with this. Maybe you like it when a preacher says in conclusion. I don't know. Very quickly, the Nicodemus of verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How, how, how? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, that would be something to watch. All right? Natalie says, Here I come, Mom. <laughs> Open up, Mom. I'm coming back in. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Can I enter into my mother's womb a second time and come out again? Well, Nicodemus, even if you could do that, you'd be no better off than the first physical birth. <laughs> because we're born in sin. We inherited a sinful, depraved, corrupt nature. I preach this in India all the time because they believe in reincarnation. They believe in several hundreds of physical births, and supposedly you get a little better every time, and then you go to be with Brahman and with Nirvana and all that 
baloney with a capital B. <laughs> no, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And no amount of physical births is going to help you. You'll be just as sinful as you were in your last physical birth. So no, it's not entering back in your mother's womb. And, and Nicodemus makes the same mistake that 99% of the world religions make. It's something I do that gets me into heaven. Can I enter into the mother's womb and come out again? Would that be a, another, would that be the new birth? Would that be being born again? No, that's not. And the Lord Jesus will now clarify in our message tonight, what it means to be born again. Anyone you want to invite for tonight, we love to have them. But let me close with this illustration. Again, 99% of people you talk to are going to think that getting to heaven is based on something they do. If you've ever asked people this question, if you were to die today and get to the gate of heaven and they should say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? I've asked that many times because it's a very revealing Answer is going to tell me what they're trusting in for salvation. You get to the gate of heaven. Why should I let you into my heaven? Why would God let me into my heaven? Because, because I am a good person. I never murdered anybody. I never stole from a bank. I'm not a drunk. I, I'm a good husband. I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I'm a good wife. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good work. I, You know, I've talked to these people, and it's all I, I, I. You know, those people never, ever, ever even mention Jesus Christ. Not once. It's all I, I, I. You know, if you're going to be born again, you're going to have to get out of the I, come into Christ and Him alone. Let me conclude with this illustration. Now... My, uh, I got lots of friends here. Who do I pick on? Well, I, I'll pick on, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on uh, uh, Brother Tucci. He's a pickable guy. Pickable guy. Brother Tucci just brought a brand new 2023. They're out now. Brand new 2023 automobile. It is spectacular. And he brings it to church. And he just invites all of us. Would you like to come out and see my new car after the service? And we're all intrigued by that. And, and so we all go outside after the service and we look at Brother Tucci's brand new car. It is beautiful. It has a paint job that is so shiny every morning. Brother Tucci gets up and he goes out and he shaves in the side of that car. It's, it's so shiny like a mirror. It's got glistening chrome wheels that shine in the light. Beautiful. You go inside and you see this, this instrument panel that looks like a Boeing 747 airliner. I mean, it's got everything, got every bell and whistle. Beautiful Corinthian leather seats. Do you know how many Corinthians had to die to make those seats? And so, beautiful, beautiful leather seats. And, and, and we're just, we're just, we're just thrilled with you, Brother Tucci. What, what a beautiful, beautiful car you have. And, and, and do you mind if you lift the hood and we'll look at the engine? So he lifts up the hood, and there's no motor, no engine, no power, beautiful exterior. And then Brother Tucci says, well, folks, uh, uh, i got to go now. And we watch him push, push his car down the street. And admittedly, we're not as impressed as we once were. And so he pushes his car to his destination. That's the description of someone who was religious Good works, looks good on the exterior. 
that has never been born again has no spiritual power. 2 Timothy 3, 5, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. If you're here today and you're religious, maybe you come here every Sunday. You're a good person, good neighbor, good husband, wife, parent, but you're not born again. You don't have the engine. You know what happens when you get saved? When you get born again, you get the engine. <laughs> Who is Christ? And you sit in your seat and let the engine, Jesus Christ, take you to your destination. So are you born again? And my Christian friends, I'm giving you a lot of information that I hope you can use with others. A lot of illustrations tonight that uh, I think you'll find very interesting. And giving us ammunition that we can be witnesses for Christ. I believe, I believe, I believe. So therefore have I spoken, Paul said. I believe, therefore have I spoken. You can't believe these things and not speak it. Forgive me, it's impossible. You tell me you're a born-again believer and that you believe this and yet you never open your mouth to witness or lead another soul to Christ, you're fooling yourself. There's no way you can go day after day, week after week, month after month, I shudder to say it, go year after year and never lead another soul to Christ or even attempt to. If you believe it, Paul said, I believe it, therefore I will speak it. I have to speak it. I must. I can't, I, I can't say I know the truths of this book and then be silent. So God help us. Father in heaven, help us. We are frail. We are weak. And Lord, we, we need you. We need your strength. We need what you can provide for us. I pray especially for any in this room that might not understand what it means to be born again. Maybe they came in here with a different understanding than what they have now. And Lord, is there anyone, whether they're members of this church, whether they're visitors, whoever they may be, whether they're 6 or 16 or 60, whatever their age, whatever their background, religious or non-religious, moral or immoral, we all need to humble our hearts before you and come to the cross and receive Christ as the one who died in our place as our perfect sacrifice for sin. He paid the debt we could never pay. And he satisfied your righteous demands of a holy God, which we could never satisfy through religion or morality or good deeds. I'm asking you, Lord, move around this auditorium. And Lord, would you put your finger on those that need to be born again? And even in a size crowd like this on a Sunday morning, there's got to be some. And I just pray that you'd bless and bring them out. Give them the courage to step out. Give them a nudge at this invitation time that they might slip out of their seat and meet us at the front and say, I need to be born again today. I pray for believers that you would help us as we say we've been born again, that we would live in the spiritual power of that transaction and that we would have spirit-controlled lives and that we would be spirit-controlled witnesses for you. Guide us in these things in Christ's name. Amen.